I'm Aaron Rothstein. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest, our inaugural guest, is Dr. Aaron Cariotti. Dr. Cariotti is professor of psychiatry at the University of California Irvine School of Medicine and director of the medical ethics program there. He serves as chairman of the medical ethics committees at the University of California Irvine Hospital and at the California Department of State Hospitals. He's currently the director of the Ethics and Public Policy Center program in bioethics and American democracy. Dr. Cariotti, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Aaron. I'm honored to be uh, the first guest on this podcast. It's great to be with you. Yeah, there's there's so much great work that you're doing and so much to talk about, but I, I wanted to start with, I guess, just medicine in general and your choice to become a physician. It is such an arduous and um, long road, four years of undergrad, four years of med school, um, multiple standardized tests, residency where you're working long and grueling hours for very little pay. And, you know, it takes a lot of motivation to do this. So why medicine for you and, and why psychiatry in particular? So I had two great loves as an undergraduate. Uh, the first was science and particularly uh, the biological sciences. I was a pre-med major, but I also discovered while I was at the University of Notre Dame, philosophy and specifically ethics and history of ethics grabbed my attention. And so I was actually going back and forth as the time approached to take the MCATs and apply to medical school, wondering, should I do medical school or should I go on to graduate school in philosophy and be more of an academic philosopher or ethicist? And my then girlfriend, now wife, suggested, I think rather wisely, that if I did philosophy, I would be only focusing on philosophy, whereas if I did medicine... I would also have an opportunity to continue exploring my interests in medical ethics. And she turned out to be exactly right. With this career, I've been able to uh, continue to uh, study and, and work and apply my original interests in uh, ethics and in philosophy to my clinical work and to my work as a clinical ethicist. And continue to research and write in that area. But also, and I think this has really helped ground me and sort of keep my feet on the ground uh, to, to deal face-to-face -face with sick patients and um, to do the kind of teaching that happens in a clinical setting, which is more an apprenticeship, sort of mentoring, a lot of one-on-one -on -one teaching and formation of medical students and residents. And that balance, I think, has been very good for me, Aaron, because I think I would have been in danger because I do love the intellectual life of ending up in a kind of ivory tower, uh, abstract space of, of theory um, and of abstract ideas if I had just gone on to pursue only philosophy, whereas the clinical aspects of, of medicine have um, allowed me to to take all of that and make it very concrete and learn. I've, I, I've learned more from my patients than I have from any textbook. Every patient I, I treat is, in a sense, is a new textbook. They have a unique life story. They have a unique perspective on the world. And so, I, I mean, I have to say, yes, it's, it's been long. It, it was grueling. I went through medical school at Georgetown before uh, the federal government passed the 80-hour work week limit for residents, which then subsequently trickled down to medical students 
as well. So I, I had months as a fourth uh, and third year medical student on the wards where I was working 100, 110 hours a week. And it was, it was grueling. It's a good thing that we've set limits in that regard. Medicine is, and medical training is more humane now. Um, but I, I also wouldn't trade those experiences for anything. Um, those, you know, going through that kind of forge, that kind of trial by fire that, that is medical education, which you know very well, uh, is just an enormously, uh, I would say for me, it was a life-changing kind of experience. And being a physician has shaped so many aspects of the way that I see the world. Um, even the way I, I look at problems in ethics and you know issues in society and, and public policy when it comes to bioethics or when it comes to health and human flourishing, I, I look at it as a diagnostician. I begin with trying to assess the problem and formulate my diagnosis or what physicians call a differential diagnosis, a list of possibilities and conjectures that we need to sort of test uh, you know, against, uh, against reality against what we're seeing. And then I move on to, okay, what, if anything, can be done about this? So the, the sort, sort of assessment and treatment planning model of uh, bedside or clinical medicine, I've taken with me also into, I think, the way that I approach bioethics and health policy and so forth. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. That makes total sense. Um, you know, I, it's uh, there's there's a lot more to talk about. I think within psychiatry itself, which I, I think is sort of a fascinating um, subspecialty within medicine. But I kind of want to get into the the COVID nineteen stuff because um, you've been heavily involved in in that area of late, um, and we'll get to I think your your lawsuit in a bit. But I wanted to bring up something that happened recently where. Um, there were courts in Ohio that forced hospitals to give coronavirus patients ivermectin. And, you know, I, I don't want to get too much into the efficacy of the, of the medication itself. Suffice it to say that my impression just from reading literature is that the evidence really isn't all that great. But more importantly is the, the question of what patients can demand of physician or uh, of a physician or of, of radical patient autonomy. And it's something I've noticed a lot in my own practice where, um, where patients or families will, will demand a treatment or a drug or a diagnostic test. And I, I don't mean to impugn them at all. I think sometimes people feel um, like the world is closing in on them. They, they want something to hold on to and some hope. Um, have you noticed this as well? I mean, is there a sense that this is something new or old, or does it have to do with... Um, I don't know the way the economics of healthcare are set up. I'm just curious what you, what you think. Yeah, about. no, this is this is a really excellent question. It's a very important issue in bioethics and clinical medicine, which I encounter all the time uh, with ethics consults in the hospital, especially consults for patients that are nearing the end of life or patients whose situation is very dire and the family is trying to hold out hope for some sort of intervention or some sort of miracle cure. And I, I think there's several uh, ways that we can understand how this problem arose. And one of, one of the perspectives I think that's helpful is historical. So if you look at medicine in the 20th century, on up through 
really probably the, the 1970s, there was a kind of paternalistic model of medicine where the physician was the expert. The doctrine of informed consent had been certainly formulated in law and certainly been formulated, for example, in the Nuremberg Code following World War II, but that was primarily looking at the ethics of research on human subjects. And it was another couple of decades before that doctrine of informed consent started to be applied also consistently in clinical medicine. So you had this sort of model of medicine where the physician knows what to do, the physician tells the patient, this is what we're going to do, and this is what I'm going to prescribe, or this is the procedure that I'm going to perform. And you know, patients could certainly ask questions, but there was a strong deference to the authority and the knowledge and the expertise of the physician. Well, because things skewed too heavily in that direction, there were also abuses. There were uh, situations where people had things that were done to them that they did not want. And concurrent with that was the rise of new medical technologies. Uh, ventilators, for example, ICU um, medicine that could keep patients alive beyond what many people could endure or beyond what many people uh, believed was you know, a state where the benefits of, of the intervention were commensurate with or outweighed the burdens of the intervention. So the rise of new medical technologies, particularly ICU level technologies that could sustain sustain a life, but in a state uh, indefinitely sometimes that many people would not want to to live in. And so you had the rise really of American bioethics at that point, late 1960s, early 1970s, And a large part of the rise of American bioethics had to do with a a focus on patient autonomy, a focus on patients' rights, and this this principle of what the Belmont Report in 1978 referred to as respect for persons, later came to be called uh, respect for autonomy in in the principalist sort of model of bioethics that was developed at Georgetown. Um, and autonomy was uh, sort of a reassertion, I think, of the fact that the doctor-patient relationship is really a two-way street, that you have a vulnerable patient who, because of their illness, is in a position where they, they need to put themselves under the care of a knowledgeable and skillful physician. They, they need someone who has the ability to diagnose and the ability to intervene and treat something that they're not, by their own resources, able to manage or able to take care of. And so you you have a relationship there where there's an imbalance of power. There's an asymmetry. Um, Obviously, the doctor and the patient are equal in dignity. They're equal in in terms of, uh, of their rights. But there is there is a kind of inequality or asymmetry in that situation of power, which makes, which puts the patient in a vulnerable position and makes it easier, easy even for well-intentioned good physicians to, um, to exercise their power or authority in, a way, in ways that can be inadvertently harmful. So respect for autonomy means, yes, the patient is impaired to some degree by their illness, but whatever capacities they have left, need to be respected and regarded. So the patient's ability uh, 
to um, understand and comprehend what's happening to them needs to be respected in the form of asking them and getting their permission before you intervene. So the right of informed consent, the right of informed refusal becomes very important uh, and starts starts being asserted more strongly in American medicine in the in the 1970s and 1980s. But the pendulum, in some respects, uh, perhaps swung too far in that direction of patient autonomy. So patient autonomy uh, being interpreted not just in terms of the, the doctor presents the medically appropriate options, discusses the risks, benefits, and alternatives of each of those options, and then the patient makes a free and informed decision to accept or refuse one or another of those options. That's sort of the that's sort of a balanced model of informed consent. Autonomy came to be misunderstood and mischaracterized as we give the patient whatever they want. Right? The, the patient demands it, um, and therefore the doctor needs to provide it. A kind of rather than a doctor-patient model of uh, of a fiduciary relationship, we we start seeing a shift in the language. Uh, patients are no longer referred to as patients; they're referred to as consumers, and doctors are referred to as uh, providers of goods and services, namely um, healthcare goods, goods and services. The problem with the the problem with the consumer model, I think there are several problems with it. It, but one problem clearly is that there are there are obviously situations where patients demand things that are not only not good for them but outright harmful to them, and this is e- easy to recognize in certain scenarios. So a typical example would be a patient comes into the emergency room demanding a prescription for an opiate medication, a, a, a narcotic uh, pain medication uh, like OxyContin or you know, Vicodin or whatever. Well, if if the physician, after a, a medical examination and examination of the patient's history, determines that the patient doesn't have a pain condition that warrants treatment with uh, a controlled substance like this, and in fact, maybe d- determines that the patient is probably addicted to this uh, medication, and that therefore pr- providing another prescription of Vicodin uh, might feed into a behavior that's harmful to the, that's medically harmful or psychologically harmful to the person. The the physician is under no moral, ethical, or legal obligation to provide that to the patient. That the doctor is not a vending machine for prescriptions. You know, like I, I come in, I, I swipe my card and pay my copay. I tell you, you know, what you want to hear, and then I push the button, and out comes my. Uh, you know, my nar- narcotic painkiller. That's not how medicine works. And I think it's easy to see that if that's how medicine worked, uh, there would be a lot of there would be a lot of harm done. Yes, you would be putting power back in the hands of the vul- vulnerable patient, but but maybe in ways that may end up harming uh, people in the end. So so there has to be uh, there has to be something between those extremes that constitutes, um, the the sweet spot in terms of uh, regard for the patient's um, rationality and freedom, regard for the patient as a as a person uh, who should be 
in the driver's seat of their life, right? And it should not have things imposed upon them that they don't want. But at the same time, uh, the doctor needing some uh, discretionary authority to be able to say to say no. So circle that's a that's a long-winded, I think, contextual background of of an answer to your question about ivermectin. And again, I likewise don't want to go down uh, the rabbit hole of debates about ivermectin's efficacy. First of all, because that's not my area of expertise. Um, I, I think the jury might still be out on on ivermectin. I'm I'm not convinced that it's been shown to be efficacious. Efficacious. I'm not convinced it hasn't. Uh, it, it won't prove to have some efficacy. But setting that aside for now, what about these situations? Whether it's that example or other examples that we could that we could find of patients or families demanding a medical intervention that the doctor doesn't think is going to be helpful, or uh, that the doctor doesn't think is going to be warranted. On the one hand, I think physicians need the right to to decline or to recuse themselves from the care of a patient if they can't come to some mutually agreeable treatment plan. So that that needs to be an important option that's available, both to patients and and physicians to find another provider. And uh, I mean, one one of the ways that this plays out, for example, at my own institution, is our process for handling requests for what we consider to be non-beneficial care, sometimes called futile care, although I'm careful with that word because when you say uh, futile care, some people mistakenly believe that you're referring to to the, the, the patient's life as being futile. And uh, the, the, word, the word designates an, uh, the, what our, our assessment of an intervention, not our assessment of the patient's life or the, the quality of the patient's life or the value of the patient's life. So non-beneficial care or harmful care uh, is something that physicians are not ethically and legally obligated to offer. At the same time, there has to be some recognition that the physician is fallible or um, that oftentimes in medicine, we're, off, we're operating in a state of uncertainty, right? With imperfect uh, data and with imperfect studies or with contradictory studies that are hard to, to draw conclusions from. And so physicians have to be given some discretionary latitude to practice outside the box or to individualize care when they think that's warranted. But but patients also have to be given the opportunity, I think, to seek out another physician if they think that the physician uh, whose care they're under is uh, not, uh, not considering options that might be reasonable or that might be worth, you know, worth a shot under the circumstances. And so what we do in these situations is offer the family an adequate period of time to try to transfer care to another provider. Um, and you know, if they find an accepting provider and an accepting facility that will take a different treatment approach to ours, we happily facilitate that transfer of care. And that's, I think that's one way of us acknowledging our own fallibility, acknowledging that, okay, this is in, in my professional judgment, um, this is not something that I would advise, but I'm not, I'm certainly not going to get in the way of you seeking care from another physician who may take a different treatment approach. I think that's a, it's a helpful and humble way of admitting, I don't know everything. I might be wrong. Maybe I'm, my read on this uh, 
research data or literature is is not correct. And, uh, you know, very often in medicine, there's just a lot that we don't know. Sometimes the most honest answer to the question of, Doc, will this be helpful or not, is we don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's hard for physicians to say that, I think. It's, it's hard for public health folks to say, to say that. I think things would be less polarized today in the debates about COVID interventions if more people on both sides of the issue would be willing to say, gee, this is what I think, but ultimately I don't know. That kind of epistemological humility, uh, I think, is often lacking, um, especially during the pandemic. You know, people want answers. No no politician wants to turn to an epidemiologist or an infectious disease specialist and ask a question about a particular policy or about a particular intervention and hear I don't know, as a response, right? So they want to know what to do. And very often the the physicians whose voices are amplified or the, the ones who get tapped as the authorities on a subject are the ones who speak out confidently about conclusions uh, and say, you know, yes, masks work. Everyone should wear an N95 or no masks are worthless under all circumstances. And, you know, take off your mask because it's a symbol of oppression. These voices tend to get amplified when they're tapped by people in positions of authority, you know, to support a particular policy decision. Um, But I I think we'd probably be in a better state if some of these discussions were more nuanced, if people were willing to do, I think, what we do in good science, especially when evidence is emerging and developing, which is which is to put forward conjectures with the um, with the idea that we're happy to see this conjecture refuted. I mean that's what science is. it's it's hypothesis driven um, and the idea is you put forward a hypothesis and people try to disconfirm it. Um, and conjectures and refutations, are the bread and butter of good research, um, but they don't, you know, they don't play as well on uh, CNN and MSNBC and Fox. They they don't play as well on necessarily on a government co- commission that's looking for concrete recommendations about how to manage the pandemic. Um, so you know, it's we're, we're living in a very interesting time when. Um, when scientists and, and physicians uh, need to um, need to be thoughtful about how we're interacting, I think, with policymakers and and with patients at the bedtime, circ- uh, at the at the bedside. Excuse me, that must have been a, a Freudian slip. Uh, patients at the bedside, circling back to your your ivermectin question, uh, I'll, I'll say one more thing about that kind of situation. Um, just like there needs to be the option to transfer care, if transfer of care is not feasible or available for certain patients, I think there does need to be some sort of appeals process. And for better or worse, uh, in most places, the appeals process may involve going to court. You say, well, you could get an ethics committee consult, and that, that certainly may be helpful. But the, the ethics committee 
is also employed by the hospital, by the institution. So they're going to have certain institutional interests that are inescapable, even, even if the individual committee members try to be as unbiased as possible. So for better or worse, when patients and families feel that they have no other recourse, um, then they may take recourse to the courts. And, uh, and there may be situations, even though I prefer when the courts can stay out of medicine, um, you know, we, we, most doctors, I think, try to avoid going to court. Uh, the, yes. the inside of a courtroom is not their favorite place to find themselves. Not at all. Um, no. I, I've, I've interacted quite a bit with the courts as uh, doing uh, forensic work in psychiatry and, and doing work as a medical ethicist and an expert witness. Um, and I, I will say that there, there probably are situations in which um, it may be appropriate for an outside authoritative entity to intervene. And given you know, the way our system currently works, very often that's going to be the courts. So, so I, don't, I don't necessarily fault those folks for seeking a legal remedy in those situations. Um, I, I, think if, um, I think if hospitals could deal with those requests in ways that offered physicians more discretionary latitude, that offered um, the possibility of transferring care to another provider, um, and that, that made reasonable efforts at kind of right to try options, right? So in a situation in which you have something that's probably not going to be harmful we don't think it's going to be helpful, but there's a chance it might be. Yeah, you could you could make a you could make a case um, that that's a reasonable medical intervention when other things haven't worked. This these are sort of the debates around some of the so-called right to try legislation, and it's always a difficult prudential balance between you know testing something adequately to make sure that it's efficacious and and getting it out to market quickly if there's signs that it might be helpful. Um, because people are dying in the inter in, in the interim, and that's that's a complicated issue between clinical medicine and, and research and drug and vaccine authorization and so forth. So, you know, the, the, the COVID pandemic is um, taking a lot of issues that were already there in science and medicine and bringing them to the fore, bringing them to the surface now. Uh, and and bringing them up, I think for for debate. And you know, I guess in some respects, uh, even though the debates are sometimes lightning rod and heated and and can quickly become politically polarized, I think it's good that people are asking some of these questions. Um, and they're, they're hard questions. I mean, it's a hard kind of epistemological question about you know how do you move from imperfect information in the scientific realm to concrete practical action in in the clinical realm and certainly reasonable people of of goodwill can disagree on that and can have different ways of weighing risks and benefits and unknowns and you know potential uh, future harms versus potential future benefits when there are unknowns so I, I we have to acknowledge that these are hard problems. And I, I think extending goodwill to people who come down on the other side of the fence on one or another of these questions is very important for our, our civic and civil discourse in a democratic society.
Absolutely. And I, you know, even pre COVID-19, as you sort of implied, we encounter these issues all the time in the hospital. Patient asks for X and depending on who the physician is taking care of the patient, um, if there's low risk to the treatment, some would say, yes, let's just try it. There's no other choice. Others would say, well, it's not proven. It's, there's no right. clear benefit. Why are we doing this? So yeah, it's a very, um, it's a very yeah. important question for us to keep considering and asking. And both, both of those people have a valid point. I mean, there, there's an argument, there's an argument for both. Um, it, it's, it has to do with how you weigh very pragmatic questions where it's not always easy to draw a line between certain, you know, uncertainties um, and, and practical action. Um, that's one of the things that makes medicine so challenging. Absolutely. Yes. Art as well as science. Right. Um, let's shift a bit, I guess, to the other side of the coin, um, not just kind of patients requesting one thing or another, but what physicians do um, when, when a patient does something that they don't like or disapprove yeah. of. So um, this summer, I think it was actually earlier this month, may have been early September, a primary care doctor in Florida sent a letter to her patients saying that she would not be treating patients in person who were not vaccinated, vaccinated against COVID-19. Now, she said she would be willing to see them over telemedicine or make referrals to other physicians. Um, but, but, you know, this was a little bit troubling. And then a Louisiana doctor said at a press conference this summer, if you don't choose the vaccine, you're choosing death. Heads, headlines like grieving husband urges people to get vaccinated after wife dies from COVID or LA man who mocked COVID-19 vaccines dies a virus. Uh, not to mention all the Twitter reactions and comments to, yeah. to these articles, which are um, appalling. Uh, an intensive care doctor tweeted nearly 100% vaccinated medical students are taking care of nearly 100% unvaccinated COVID patients. Does it seem yeah. fair? Now, there are two separate things I think going on here. One is this kind of schadenfreude the I told you so, mm -hmm. when unvaccinated patients get yeah. sick and die, um, which seems to me is sort of an unfortunately broken human response to, uh, you know, when people feel that they're proven right in some way. And I, I think it is unfortunate that that is sort of a built-in kind of human response. But, but even more disturbing, I think, is that physicians are participating in this. Yeah. And talk to us about why this is so appalling, particularly when we think about what the role of the yeah. physician is in taking care of the sick. So the ethic that goes all the way back to the Hippocratic writings and what was so innovative about the Hippocratic ethic is that for the first time, at least in documented human history, we had a group of trained individuals, at least trained at the level that um, the, the science of the day offered, um, you know, practical wisdom about helping the sick, who publicly professed and committed their life to treating the sick simply because they were sick. There's this innocuous line that you could pass over at first glance in the original Hippocratic Oath that says, whatever house I enter into, I will come for the benefit of the sick, meaning the sick individual. I'm not, I'm not here to serve a social program. I'm not here to treat the social organism as a whole, which was the mistake made in Germany in the 20th century. Uh, medicine stopped serving the sick individual and took it upon itself to, to, to treat the Volk, right? To the, the social organism 
was the patient. And when the social organism has a cancer in it, what do you do? You carve out the cancer. This was sort of the the metaphor that was that was put forward to justify um, first involuntary sterilization and then uh, even more severe eugenic measures that were endorsed by uh, German medicine in the 20th century, like the T4 euthanasia program. So, uh, but they, contrast that with the with a Hippocratic ethic that says um, we we need people that publicly promise to use their knowledge and skills only for the purpose of healing people. And we heal people regardless of their social status. We treat patients simply because they're sick, not because we like them, not because they're nice, not because we agree with the choices that they have made, um, not because treating them advances some sort of agenda or social program, even if it happens to be a good agenda or a good social program. That's immaterial uh, here. When doctors start asking, how is it that this person became sick and how responsible are they for their own illness? That will take us down a road where we start saying, I'm not going to treat you because you failed to lose weight and your medical problems are a result of your morbid obesity, or you failed to control your blood pressure. Uh, sugar. And so now you have diabetic retinopathy and you're going blind and you have peripheral vascular disease and uh, and your limbs are, your feet are gangrenous. I'm not going to treat you because this is all your own fault. Well, people should rightly be horrified at any physician who does this in any physician who refuses to treat an HIV patient because you know that person engaged in high risk sexual behavior that caused them uh, to, to acquire that infection, even, even when they were advised by their doctor to, to be more careful. Well, we, we, medicine, um, would, I, I, to my mind, obviously be corrupted by that approach. So while I understand, uh, physicians desire to, um, uh, to have patients accept interventions that are going to reduce their risk. And I, I can understand the frustration uh, when uh, patients, you know, behave in ways that that cause them harm. Uh, we also deal with that routinely in medicine. This is nothing new. I mean, an emergency room doctor, friend of mine said, half the people that that come in here end up in the ER because they did something stupid. Right, right? Right. If you, if you hang, hang around an ER long enough, you start to see that that's a bit of an exaggeration. But but there's a lot of there's a lot of truth to it. Yes. Um, but I mean, the example I use, Aaron, with with medical students, and, and this is an example I've used in in teaching this Hippocratic ethic, uh, even prior to COVID and these debates about vaccines, is you got two patients coming into the emergency room five minutes apart, and the first patient is a young 19 year old woman who's jogging in the park when she was suddenly overtaken by an assailant and beaten savagely and and violently raped horrifying. She's a victim of, of, of a crime. Um, she has been physically and sexually traumatized. She's obviously, she's in need of care and intervention, but her vital signs are stable. She's not bleeding out. She's not in imminent danger of, of death. Five minutes later, patient number two comes in. He's in handcuffs, brought in by the police, uh, bleeding out, 
because he got into a, a, a shooting exchange with, with the police when they tried to apprehend him. And six different witnesses at the scene identified this man as the assailant who had attacked patient one. Now, with, with patient two, uh, a, a doctor or a nurse, quite naturally, quite understandably, may feel a strong sense of moral repugnance. That's perfectly understandable. They, they may believe, rightly so, that patient number two deserves to be punished for what he's done. And I would agree. But as a physician, qua physician, with the, the ethic appropriate to medicine as a profession, your responsibility in that moment is by the rules of emergency triage, patient number two needs your immediate care even perhaps before you attend to patient number one, if there are limited resources, because he's about to die. And you better give patient number two the same high quality trauma care and do everything you can to save his life that you would give any other victim of a gunshot wound, right? Regardless of how you feel about this guy, the, the job of, of punishment uh, falls to the judge and the jury and the judicial system your job is to be a healer. Now that's kind of an extreme example, but it, it hopefully it drives home the point that um, that that saying um, I'm not going to treat someone because they're unvaccinated is uh, I think undermines in very problematic ways the ethic that uh, that says physicians should not arbitrarily abandon their patients. Um, physicians should not abandon a whole cohort of patients simply because uh, they disagree with that patient's healthcare decision or that patient's behavior. Um, and this, uh, this, I think, rightly created um, an outcry because patients need to trust not only individual physicians, they need to trust the profession of medicine as a whole. Uh, it's one of the reasons that the American Medical Association forbids its members from using their knowledge and skills for anything other than the purpose of healing. This is the basis of the AMA's position in its code of ethics against physician participation in capital punishment and torture. The AMA does not take a political or even an ethical position on capital punishment as such, right? An AMA member can vote however they like and believe whatever they like about the advisability of capital punishment as a public policy. That's not the issue. But as a physician, you cannot use your knowledge and skills of physiology and pharmacology to to kill people, even if that killing, you know, that judicial execution by the state might be justified. That's not the role of a physician uh, because that confuses the public and that undermines the trust in the public that uh, that the knowledge and skills that this person acquired in their medical training is going to be used always and only for the purpose of healing. There's one more argument that I, I want to address about the, this this vaccine. I'm not going to treat the unvaccinated issue, and that's you know I I can't have people in my waiting room who might transmit the virus to other people. Now with the COVID vaccines, the get the vaccine for the sake of others and the social good argument I think is very weak. And the reason it's very weak is that unfortunately it turns out that. While these vaccines have um, pretty considerable efficacy at reducing the chance of you getting seriously ill, 
Uh, so they, they lower the individual's risk of uh, hospitalization if they get COVID. They're not sterilizing vaccines, meaning you can still get infected and you can still transmit the virus. And when you get infected, your chance of transmitting the virus is just as high, the CDC has acknowledged, as um, the risk of an unvaccinated infected person transmitting the virus. So, so some vaccines, like the measles vaccine, for example, are sterilizing. They prevent not only more serious symptoms of the illness, but they pre prevent uh, infection and transmission as well, which is good because measles is extremely infectious. So uh, thank, thank God that we have a, a vaccine that does that for that particular, uh, for that particular uh, infectious disease. But the COVID vaccines don't do that. And, and some have even argued that, it, you know, because a lot of folks don't realize this, the vaccines give them a false sense of security, a false sense that I'm okay. So I don't have to take precautions against spreading the illness to others. That if I, if I get a cough or some symptoms, it, it's, it can't be COVID because I got vaccinated. Therefore, it's okay for me to go visit grandma. Right. Whereas if I was unvaccinated, maybe I had avoided before I got the vaccine visiting grandma. So some some folks have raised concerns uh, that it, people have put too much confidence in the vaccine's ability to uh, protect other people around me. And unless we clarify what the vaccines can and cannot do realistically, um, people are going to alter their behavior in ways that might even increase the risk of transmission as people are vaccinated. So it's a very, I mean, this is a very complex issue. Um, and the notion that uh, you know, nobody in my practice is going to get COVID as long as I exclude all the unvaccinated people, actually, right now, that just doesn't hold up under scrutiny. So I think there are empirical problems with uh, that position, as well as kind of ethical and philosophical problems with that position. Right. Um, now let's get to your lawsuit because we're running a, a little bit long time. I want to make sure that we have, we, uh, we cover this. Um, you're currently involved in a lawsuit in California, uh, claiming that the UC Board of Regents vaccine mandate is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the uh, 14th Amendment. Can you tell us about this suit and why it's so important? Sure. So in short, my suit hinges on a, a central claim that I, I believe is empirically established in the research literature. I think it's it's really hard to say at this point that this is only a hypothesis or the jury is still out. And the claim has to do with the level of immunity that we acquire uh, by getting infected and recovering from COVID, so-called natural immunity. And by natural immunity, I don't mean just how our immune system works before we've been exposed to the virus. In this context, I mean infection-induced immunity. And my claim is that infection-induced immunity is equal to, um, in fact, it's superior to, but for purposes of my legal argument, it only needs to be equal to, uh, equal to the immunity conferred by the vaccine. So if the rational basis for the vaccination policy is to improve people's immunity to COVID, then any rational policy should recognize that there's more than one way to gain immunity. And 
a policy that says that someone who's been infected and recovered from COVID cannot return to campus, but someone who's been vaccinated can return to campus, lacks any rational basis and is discriminatory. Here's why. The research suggests that the level of immunity that's acquired from being infected with COVID is the lowest estimates are somewhere around 95%, but there's a lot of large studies that suggest sort of 99% efficacy of naturally acquired immunity that is not waning over time, that's not waning with new variants. And I mean, this should be good news for us when we're thinking about the pandemic, when we're thinking about the likelihood of this becoming endemic, uh, that vaccines are an important tool, but they're only one tool uh, to on the way to herd immunity or on the way to um, getting getting a handle on the spread of COVID. Vaccine immunity uh, looked very robust at first, but unfortunately, it's uh, there's a fair amount of evidence now that vaccine immunity is waning with time and is waning with uh, new variants. It's not the vaccines are not as effective against Delta uh, for infection and for transmission. They're still fairly effective for hospitalization and severe illness, which is which is good news. We don't know about this new mu variant, whether that's going to become dominant and how the vaccines are going to work against that. Um, but basically what I'm arguing in my, in my case is that uh, requiring already immune individuals to get a vaccine um, puts those individuals at unnecessary risk because the, the research, as it now stands at least, suggests that vaccines don't improve the immunity of people with natural immunity. There's some studies, too early to say definitively, but some studies suggesting they might even worsen the immunity of people who have natural immunity. Um, and the vaccines, and again, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of, of arguing and talking about uh, vaccine risks, uh, with the COVID vaccines, but we, we know that the vaccines have some degree of risk. So some subjecting a person who's not going to benefit and might be harmed to unnecessary risks uh, is not a justifiable public policy. Um, you can certainly try to persuade those folks that vaccines would be good for them, but I think forcing their hand, saying that if you don't do this, you're going to lose your job, uh, constitutes a form of medical and public health coercion that I think in the end is is going to backfire. It's, it's going to harm some individuals who then are not going to have recourse to any, any remedies. I have argued publicly that it's going to increase the problem of vaccine hesitancy. Um, I, I think you don't convince people to do something by trying to force their hand. Uh, persuasion can be painstaking, it can be slow, it can be arduous, but it's a better long-term strategy, I think, than coercion. And um, interestingly, vaccine rates went down in the days and in the week or so following uh, President Biden's announcement of, uh, of a vaccine mandate for all federal workers. So there's even some empirical evidence that uh, that some people will dig in their he heels simply because you're forcing them, simply because simply because you're you're 
you're not giving them the choice and you're not giving them the option. So this sort of circles back to that first part of our our conversation and that the, the necessary balance, Aaron, between uh, you know the knowledge um, of public health authorities about what's going to be beneficial in the aggregate and uh, and the right of the individual to um, to say and and to determine what does and doesn't go into my body and what what decisions are made that might affect my personal health. And again, I think the the argument for vaccine mandates would be stronger if these vaccines were provided sterilizing immunity, if they reduced the risk of um, or or definitively eliminated the risk of of trans transmission of the virus. But given the fact that they don't, and to what extent and whether they reduce transmission is still very much an open question, but we certainly know that they don't eliminate the transmission of the virus. Then the the argument from the common good, the argument, um, you know, this might not benefit you because you're young and healthy, but it might benefit other people around you. That argument is very significantly weakened in in this case, and um, and so I I think given that fact, the balance of goods and a balance of harms needs to tilt heavily in favor of letting people make their own decisions on the vaccines, even if some people will make decisions that end up harming them in that respect. I think it's important to maintain that principle of informed consent and informed refusal under these circumstances and and heavy-handed or coercive measures taken by um, private or public institutions or taken by the government, um, I, I think is not ultimately going to help the problem. It's going to exacerbate these um, polarities. And it's going to make um, many people feel that they've been unjustly coerced. Uh, on the legal side of things, I'll just comment maybe a little bit um, on, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'm going to enter that caveat here. But the, the case law, the Supreme Court case that people typically refer to uh, as a justification for uh, vaccine mandates, either by the government or by businesses or private entities, is a case that goes back to 1905, Jacobson v. Massachusetts. And the Jacobson precedent has been used many times to justify uh, vaccine requirements uh, or, or mandates. And it's it's being it's being referred to today by proponents of vaccine mandates as a as a legal justification for them. But if you dig into the Jacobson case, which I've been doing over the last couple of weeks, um, this was a case where the Supreme Court upheld the right of the city of Boston to impose a nominal fine. The fine was five dollars, which adjusted for inflation would be like one hundred and fifty five dollars or something like that today on anyone in the city of Boston who refused the the uh, smallpox vaccine. Now, smallpox is much more dangerous than COVID. That's not to trivialize COVID. I've treated many, many patients that have died from COVID. I've had COVID myself. I have friends in the hospital right now um, and who have been in the ICU with COVID. So uh, it's a serious illness for especially the elderly and people who are at risk. But smallpox was more deadly. Um, 
And the Supreme Court said, yes, you can impose a $5 fine on people that refuse a vaccine. Well, that precedent was pretty narrowly tailored. And uh, to use that as a justification for um, a, a much more, I would argue, coercive uh, policy where people are going to lose their jobs if they don't comply, people are going to lose their scholarship and their ability to finish school or a PhD program if they don't comply, um, I think is stretching that Jacobson precedent much further uh, than it can go. And there, there have been several developments in uh, uh, judicial case law doctrines since then having to do with uh, rights of bodily autonomy and, and you know, balancing of certain interests that, uh, that make the Jacobson precedent uh, much more uh, complex to apply in a sort of straightforward way. So I think there are still very real legal arguments on the table about whether these uh, vaccine mandates can hold up under uh, critical judicial scrutiny. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how all of that plays out in the courts. But, you know, I filed a case in federal court. It's a constitutional claim. Um, and we're prepared to appeal if necessary. And uh, we're seeing a whole rash of cases now in courts uh, challenging mandates put forward by other entities, whether governmental or private. So I, I think this is an issue that in the next several months, the courts are going to have to weigh in on. And eventually, the Supreme Court may even weigh in on and, and you know, tell <laughs> Tell us what the uh, what the case law sort of uh, lay of the land is going to be vis-a-vis -vis Jacobson and, and other precedents. It's worth noting also that Jacobson was the justification in the now infamous Supreme Court of Buck v. Bell in 1927, which upheld Virginia's involuntary sterilization law of the quote-unquote feeble-minded. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who wrote that decision, said that the, referring to Jacobson, the principle that allows for forced vaccination is, quote, wide enough to cover the cutting of the fallopian tubes. And then there was the, the infamous uh, uh, line, uh, three generations of imbeciles are enough. That was in a Supreme Court decision that's never been overturned. The laws that it upheld have been rescinded by the states, but the decision itself has never been overturned. So, so this is a, you know, the Jacobson precedent has been misused and abused, um, you know, more than once in the history of of, of the courts. So, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting next, I would say, six months to a year, um, looking at legal issues around these vaccine mandates. And my case is perhaps one of those cases that may um, that may call upon the courts to to provide more definitive answers in this regard. Yeah. You know, one of the kind of things that I read, uh, I guess, in response to this um, was from a physician who's also, in, uh, I guess, involved in the School of Public Health. And, and she said that we have to separate the individual from the policy. A university or an employer needs to set policy that applies to everyone. And verifying whether someone was previously infected is extremely challenging, while verifying vaccination is sensible and very reasonable. In other words, it seems like the argument uh, uh, against this is that, well, it's just too difficult. So yeah. let's it's an argument from convenience, which um, which the defendants in my case are are they have hinted at, but if they make that the centerpiece of their case, 
uh, here's some free advice to the defendants, they're, they're going to lose because convenience or efficiency uh, is not going to withstand judicial scrutiny when you're talking about constitutional rights, especially, um, which are going to receive a very high level of judicial scrutiny. So that's a losing argument. Um, and it's also a false claim. Uh, there are widely available T-cell tests now. Even after antibodies have waned, uh, you can get a T-cell test uh, showing um, enduring natural immunity and, and uh, d- definitively showing a previous infection. I had two positive PCR tests. So, you know, from two different labs, two days apart. So, okay, Cariati, one of your tests was a false positive. Maybe, maybe. Okay, well, multiply that by another test, that, <laughs> you know, the false positive rate of another test, plus all the classic symptoms of of COVID. It's not that hard to establish cases of COVID. Can we establish every case of COVID? Probably not, but we can establish some. And those some that we can establish should be given respect and regard if the empirical evidence shows that their immunity is robust and equal to or better than vaccine immunity. So I I just I you know I I hope I hope the defendants advance that that argument because then my case will be easy. But I suspect they're their lawyers are probably too sharp to to lean on that as a justification for the policy. Right, right. Um, what do you think is their best argument at this point, or the the best argument you've encountered? Well, so far in their written response, they have not tried to encounter, uh, or to try to encounter counter my my central empirical claim, which I sketched early on the efficacy of um, natural immunity, except to say that it's. Um, it's still theoretical, you know. It hasn't been definitively established. They didn't actually argue against any of the, any directly against any of the studies that I cited. They've they've challenged the expertise of our experts, um, and they've talked in very generic terms about the necessity of this policy to control the pandemic. So, which of those arguments they're ultimately going to lean on? I don't know. I mean, if the court accepts that our experts have sufficient expertise, and I personally am acting as an expert in my own case as well, and I had sufficient expertise that they um, that they asked me to help write their vaccine rollout policy uh, for the UC office of the president, which was deployed across the entire university. Um, So I think they're going to have a hard time making the case that I lack that I had sufficient expertise to help draft the vaccine rollout policy. How, how we prioritize vaccines when we had limited supply, but that I lack expertise to opine on their vaccine mandate policy. I, I just, um, so I don't know. Um, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> we'll yes. see what they lean on. Yes. Um, I, at this point, Aaron, it's been a great conversation. I need to, I need to wrap up because I'm due for, uh, I think another interview. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cool. Thanks so much. Good luck with everything. Yeah. Good luck with the podcast and um, look forward to working with you more on, on projects at EPPC. Definitely. It's going to be great. 